If you've had the privilege and opportunity of following Jesus in your life for any length of time, you know that journey's pretty unpredictable. You know, sooner head in a particular direction, you think, yeah, this is what God wants me to do. I'm, I'm listening, Lord, I, 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 this is what you said, and then a little 90-degree turn, or maybe a 45, or maybe a 180. What's, what's Jesus up to in those moments? Why this unpredictability? Well, I just want to assure you that you're in very good company. Because the gospel reading that Cindy read is about disciples that are, Jesus says in actually the account that uh, is not Mark, but this, what Cindy just read is in the other two gospels, synoptic gospels as well. And, and we hear that he said, let's go up to a mountain to pray. Like praying with Jesus, that's a great idea. I would love to pray with you again, Lord. But when they get to this mountain, what Cindy was reading is something unpredictable happens. What happens? Suddenly Jesus appears in a glorified way. The ordinary clothes that he was walking up the mountain with now become translucent. Luke says they became like lightning. Mark uses a little bit more of a pedestrian image. They are whiter than anybody could bleach them. You know, heralding the day of detergent commercials, uh, <laughs> looking ahead. But there's something different about Jesus in that moment. We catch a glimpse of the glorified Christ. We catch a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had before he emptied himself and came to earth. And we need to have that glimpse of his glory. There's so much that's going on in this. Let me see if we can just unpack it a little bit. Um, Maybe we should have kind of a conversation afterwards if we have time, but we don't. But here's what's, here's what's going on. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, just sort of the inner circle of the 12 disciples, and leads them up to the high, amount, up to the high mountain where they are all alone. And he is, what, transfigured before him. This is Sunday in our liturgical calendar. It's called Transfiguration Sunday because this is the time we look at the way the Lord was glorified. Transfigured, the Greek word is metamorphosis, from which we get our word metamorphosis. It means to change. It means to do something, to be something other than what you were. So Jesus is transformed before them into this place of glory. But there's more that goes on. Suddenly there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, it'd be enough if just the disciples were there to see Christ glorified. But now we have Moses, we have Elijah. What's going on there? Theologically, if you guys like to nerd out on this, which I do, and I know Nick does, uh, what, what's going on is that Jesus, in, in having him appear in this glorified way and having Moses and Elijah come, you know that the scripture says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Moses is the one through whom the law came because God gave it to him. And Elijah is the one who represents the prophets. Curiously enough, the uh, end story of both of these guys is a little, it's not normal. Elijah is taken up to heaven in a chariot Chariots of fire. So we don't, there's no, can't go to a gravestone and find Elijah's name. Moses does die, 
but it says that the Lord buried him. That's a little bit intriguing. Further intrigue, it says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. You know, typically the writers of the scriptures only use numbers when they are trying to make a point. Why are they saying six days? Luke says it's kind of eight or nine. Uh, another, Matthew says it's six. But before that, the ninth chapter of the, of the gospel that Cindy read, Jesus says, um, he says, if anyone is ashamed of me in my words, well, he says basically, some who are here will not die before they see the Son of Man. Just before that. And so these gospel writers are counting and they're seeing in this transfiguration the experience that James and John and Peter have, which is to get a glimpse of eternity, which is to get a glimpse of, of what it means to, to be with Christ, to be in that glorified state. It's a little, it, it's taking what is their future and our future, if you know Christ, and bringing it into the present. So if you're taking notes, this is a good place to start. The, the, the transfiguration, if you will, is a glimpse into eternity. What, what do we call that glimpse? Peter helps us out because Peter says, it's the glory. Peter's writing years later, decades later, from his eyewitness account, and we, he says we saw the majestic glory. Glory is, glory is kind of an all-encompassing term, a shorthand for saying it's a mind-blowing experience. We know that it is God's honor. God is honoring, the Father's honoring Jesus. We know that he's already conferred power on him. We know that when God himself, nobody has seen him, but what we see is his glory. We see a, 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 just a small portion of what that means, usually manifested in some kind of light, like it is here. Some brilliance, some brightness. Uh, it's manifested in voice. We hear the Lord say, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The very words that God the Father said over Jesus when he was baptized. So this is about the glory of God. Being conferred, uh, being, uh, he's, he's saying to his son, the son of God, you, you, I, you share in my glory. And we need to know that we too have a glimpse in that. We need to know that this is our future. If you know Christ, this glory, this place of being, glory is defined by being in the presence of God. And, and this, we, our own bodies will be changed into this glory. Spiritual beings, says 1 Corinthians. You heard in the collect, from glory to glory, also in scripture. There's a way in which, to the extent we are becoming more like Jesus, we are reflecting more and more the glory that God gives. Remember when Moses was up in Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and being with the Lord for 40 days, he came down from the mountain and his face shone so brightly that they said, Moses, you're killing us. You have to put a, a veil over your face. Why was his face shining? Because he had experienced the glory of God. It was the glory, the manifestation of that that was in his countenance. And so Peter, writing all those years later, said, we witnessed that glory firsthand. And he's saying this to encourage people. He's saying that the gospel isn't about like clever doctrine and stuff like that. We like our theology, yay. But at the end of the day, it has to be that personal experience of the glory of Christ, the glory of God. See, this is how glory works. God, uh, Jesus abandoned sort of that glory that he had with the heavenly father, but the father in this 
instance is, is reaffirming that, is putting that on display so all of us can see. And we as followers will also, are also sharing in that glory and increasing in that. And glory, in, in effect, is just the manifestation of Christ in our life. That when you and I live for him, when we see the world as, as he wants us to see it, when we love as he enables us to love, when we forgive as he has so often and constantly is forgiving us, we are manifesting some of that glory. The place that Jesus is pointing us to is our eternal home. I want that, and I think it's intended to be an encouragement for today, with all the stuff that's going on, that the followers of Christ will be in this place of glory, which is defined as his presence and his radiance and his power. It's not unattainable if you would know Christ. Sometimes we look for things that we know are unattainable. How many of you are still checking out Zillow for houses that you know that you can't afford but you really like? Yeah, I think we get Zillow is just sort of a great discouragement but sort of a, a, an interesting pastime for some folks. But this isn't like that. Jesus has a place for us. He knows each of us by name. So we get a glimpse of our future, but we also get a perspective on our present. One of the things that um, encourages, me, encourages me so much about this is that if we're living for the glory of God, if we're saying, Lord, I want my life to reflect you as your life reflected your heavenly Father, Jesus' life reflected his heavenly Father so much that he could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a boast that any one of us is going to be able to make this side of glory. I'm not trying to put that on us. Certainly not on myself, so I'm not putting it on you. But the point is people should be able to see more and more of Christ. And they should see it through the, through the ways that we interact with what's going on around us. When we live for the glory of God, when we live to please Him, when we live to manifest His life in us to others who need it just as much as we do, it allows us to put this world into perspective. It allows us to go through um, the challenges. Uh, not, it's easy to go through the good stuff, the successes, the things that happen at work, when the project gets done, when uh, you're called out as the key person on the team when whatever athletic endeavors you are, you're actually doing well and your team is winning, when you know, whatever issues or, or things that have gone on in relationships is actually are healing, and you're like, this is great, this is what I like. But sometimes those things aren't happening or sometimes those are delayed. And sometimes we, if, we don't, if we think that life is more about wanting Jesus to solve the issues and grant the desires that we have, then when those don't happen or when those are delayed, it can create some distance between us and the Lord. We can say, well, Lord, I thought you loved me. I thought you were there for me. I thought you were actually leading me to this job and now it's going through layoffs. I thought this was the relationship that was going to be the one for my life and now that's not happening. When those surprises, when that unpredictability happens in our life and we have, we've thought that we've seen Jesus more or less as the provider of the good things, then it can create some distance or some strain. Sometimes it causes us to leave church 
when we think, and you, I said this not too long ago when we were talking about authority, when, when we see leaders that should be acting much more as the kind of leaders we read in Scripture, and they're not. They're far more selfish. They're far more focused. They're using church to glorify themselves rather than to bring glory to God. And so when those things happen, as I said, we can create distance. But to say to live for Christ, to live for his glory, is to say, Lord, I know that all the things that are happening in my life at this moment, I can use to bless you. I can use to display your perseverance because that's what I need right now. I, could, I can use this to display patience. I can use this opportunity to provide forgiveness. All these things glorify you. But those aren't easy to do, are they? See, if we're not glorifying God, if that's not our compass heading, then too often we're wanting to glorify ourselves in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes we can use the good things of this world. The things that I've just described are good things. Good, you know, good relationships, relationships that have been restored, jobs that are meaningful, um, an income that's sustainable. These are good things. You know, so don't, don't hear that they're not good things. Just hear that all of them are in the service of the glory of God. And he gives us more than that. But if we just say, Lord, that's all I want from you, this is becoming a place of self-glory. Jesus said to, in John, if you want to find out more about glory, read John's gospel. He's all about it. But Jesus said, I don't give, I can't bring glory to myself. I don't, you know, my glory, I, if I glorify myself, he says, it means nothing. But my glory comes from God. The life that Jesus is calling us to live is the same one that he lived with his father, to receive glory from him. We can't receive it from ourselves. Um, but it's tempting, isn't it? Who doesn't like to be glorified by your peers? Who doesn't like to be, you know, oh, you're the guy or you're the, you're the woman. This is great. Our culture takes glory to an nth degree. In a few hours, many of us will be going to somebody's home or some other establishment to watch one of the most interesting uh, aspects of self-glorification I think our culture can produce, called the Super Bowl. Now, I like the Super Bowl. I'm going to somebody's house to watch it, and I can't wait. And if you want to come with me to be part of the righteous, you can come and, <laughs> and root for the 49ers. And if you're a Chiefs fan, you're numbered amongst the heathen. But, but it's Super Bowl, I actually had to look this up. This is probably going to be the supreme viewership of all time, topping 125 million people watching this thing. And you know how it goes. You know, the teams, I mean, there's so many opportunities to glorify. Half the folks aren't watching the game. They're waiting for the commercials. The other half are kind of tuned into the game. The third of the folk are just eating. You know, it's just like there's all kinds of avenues by which we can say, Oh, this is so great. But at the, end of the, at the end of the Super Bowl, a team will win. Pray for the 49ers. For, you know, somebody will win, and then they will get the Lombardi Trophy, $50,000 Lombardi Trophy. And confetti, 3,000 pounds of confetti will fall from the ceiling and give them, to give them honor and praise and glory. And then they will say speeches and thanks that is both predictable and forgettable because we've heard this each and every year. And then those that do well, and I, 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 I do love football, but I just want to put it in perspective that this glory is man-made and therefore this glory is temporal. The glory that we want, the glory that should always be our compass heading is the glory that comes from following the Lord, obeying him. I wonder 
if this message finds anyone in a particular place of discouragement. And I say that because if you listen to the Isaiah reading that Satya read, sorry, yeah, it's a story about Elijah. It's a story about a prophet, Elijah, who was taken up to heaven, who's, who's now standing next to Moses and conversing with Jesus. This is Elijah glorified, but the Old Testament reading that Satya read was not Elijah glorified, it was Elijah depressed. And it's so astounding because it's 1 Kings 19 that was read 1 Kings 18. He has this amazing display of God's power, God's glory coming down from heaven. He is, it's one against 400. He's going against the priests of Baal, ones that have, uh, have seduced Israel from the true God to a false God. And, and Elijah's called to finally have it out. Like, we're gonna have it out. Here's how we're doing it. I'm gonna build an altar, and I'm gonna, and you build an altar, and I'm, we're gonna see, and God's gonna come down with fire and see whose sacrifice uh, gets consumed. That will be the sign of the true God. You know the story. Baal's prophets do all kinds of stuff, no fire, nothing's happening, they dance harder, still nothing, go into the afternoon, they're doing more rituals that still are bearing no fruit. And then Elijah says, oh, it's my turn, okay, great. I'll put the sacrifice on the altar just for fun. I'll pour water on it. I'll pour a lot of water on it. So you, so you see that there's no tricks, no gimmicks. And then he prays, and God comes and consumes the sacrifice. Not only sacrifice, but the stone altar. And he licks up the water. It is a total smackdown of God against the false gods of Baal. So you'd think he'd be pretty excited. That's better than the Super Bowl win. But he's not. He's depressed. He is, because immediately after that, opposition comes in. Immediately after that, Jezebel, the queen of, of the nation, of Israel actually, um, says, okay, well, we just got to go hunt you down and take your life. And so he runs. He goes for 40 days. And so to go from the height of seeing God work in his life to being chased as, uh, on a capital offense, the reading finds him in a cave, at least confused, not knowing what's going on. And God comes to him, not with any kind of critique or any kind of um, blame or any kind of harshness, but he comes to him with a question. Why are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. Sometimes doing, living for Christ is very isolating. Sometimes even particularly after times of success. And it just he comes and it seems like it's the same old stuff. So then the Lord speaks to you. He says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Boy, that's an echo of the Moses. He passed by Moses. So the wind, the Lord's not in the wind, even though it destroyed, tears the rocks up. There's an earthquake. The, the Lord's not in the earthquake. There comes a fire, and the Lord's not in the fire. But then there's a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. 
What a contrast of how Christ comes, how God comes. On the Mount of Transfiguration in full glory, or as much as the Peter, James, and John can stand. And here to Elijah in a gentle whisper. But the whisper, and then a voice says to Elijah again, what are you doing here? Elijah replies with the same problem, with the same lament. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant. He's rehashing the stuff that's already gone on. But then you know how the Lord comes to him. He says, look, go into the desert of Damascus. Basically, get some resources. Anoint Haziel, the king of Aram, and uh, Nimshi, king over Israel, and Elisha as to, su- to succeed you as prophet. And then he says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Here's the point. The Lord comes in different ways, times of great glory, and times when we, even, even though we've experienced that in our lives in some way, we find ourselves in a place that's confusing and isolating and we don't want to be there, and the Lord is still coming to us. And he's coming to us with the same perspective that he's coming to Elijah with, which is to say in so many gentle, loving, kind way, Elijah, you don't know what's going on. You don't know all the things that I've got planned. It, you, it feels very isolating, and from your perspective, I get it. But I've got 7,000 people. I've got a plan for you to go get some help to make sure that justice is done in my land through the kings and through, essentially, God will discipline these recalcitrant Israelites. We have, don't we, these Elijah moments. But the Elijah moments are never meant by Christ to be moments by ourselves. They're meant to be moments in which we find Christ in a different way than say this glorified transfiguration way. But we find him in a way that we desperately need him. And so, Psalm 27 that that Alyssa read, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Light, salvation, again, just glimpses of the glory of Christ. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. People of God, if we would orient our lives in the way that Christ revealed himself in this transfiguration moment, is wanting to live for his glory. It puts all our world into perspective. It keeps us from the temptation of worldly glory. And it recognizes that even in those times where we will find ourselves distant from the Lord for a variety of reasons, even there he will be with us, encouraging us, speaking to us, and restoring us, that we might continue and always be able to live for his glory. Amen.